you'd like to open up your Bibles to Ephesians, the book of Ephesians in the New Testament, chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, we're going to read. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved." And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. I want to ask a question to begin with today. How valuable is truth? How valuable is truth to you? How important is it that you know and believe that which is true? And does it really matter all that much if truth is hidden? If truth is mixed with lies? Does it matter to you if others believe lies about you? Is it a problem if somebody is telling lies about somebody that you love? Does that matter to you? I would think that the answer to all those questions would be yes. Yes, it matters. Truth matters. It matters that what is said about me and that what is said about my loved ones is true. Proverbs 23, 23 says, Buy truth, purchase truth, and do not sell it. Buy wisdom, instruction, and understanding. Now, if it's true, if it's true that truth matters in matters of life, in relationships, in politics, in science, isn't it, doesn't it matter that what we get told by our local GP is true? These things matter, don't they? And if those things matter, how much more does it matter when we think about the truth of God? Jesus said in John 4, 24, God is spirit. And those 
who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Must worship. Not may or can, but must worship Him in spirit and according to truth. Jesus says that we're not to come to God in a muddled, lackadaisical kind of way where we're not really bothered about what's true. We just want the general idea, God, of who you are. We just get a general sense of God's goodness and that's good enough. Jesus says, no, you must worship him in truth. We're not to be unconcerned or complacent about matters of truth. We're to seek out God's truth. We're to purchase it. We're to value it. We're protecting it. We're to fight for truth. And we're not, therefore, to tolerate lies, are we? Charles Spurgeon said, He who does not hate the false does not love what is true. Like I said, we wouldn't tolerate lies being told about our friends and family, would we? So why are we tolerant of lies being told about God? Why are we so tolerant of that? Why will we have unity with other churches that preach a false God? But we wouldn't have fellowship with people that lied about our husband or our wife. It's weird, isn't it? Fishy. Strange. John Calvin said, A dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I saw that God's truth is attacked and yet would remain silent. You know, 505 years ago, on October the 31st, a young monk, a young Augustinian monk named Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And that one little bark from God's servant raised against the lies of the Roman Catholic Church created this great cacophony of roars that we now know as the Reformation. And that's what we're focusing on today. In this month, we celebrate the Reformation 505 years ago. When men and women used by God, not perfect, not perfect men and women, but men who were willing to stand for truth against the errors and the lies and the spiritual darkness of the time that they lived in. And all of you here today, whether you realize it or not, have actually been impacted in some way, shape or form by the theology of the Reformation. Did you know that? All of us have been. The fact that you sat there with a Bible in your hand. The fact that that Bible is in a language that you understand is a product of the Reformation. Secondly, the fact that you're able to choose what church you go to. You're able to choose how to worship God. That is again a product of the Reformation. The fact that in communion, when we take communion here, you get to take both the bread and the wine. In the time that Martin Luther lived, the wine was often withheld from the laity. Did you know that? They were only allowed the bread in many circumstances, not the wine. Thirdly, you're not obligated to confess your sins to a priest. 
That has changed because of the Reformation. Those are just a few things that we often take for granted. But if it weren't for this thing called the Reformation, we wouldn't have those things. And it's, I, I feel anyway, I feel it's a great tragedy. A great tragedy that many of us who grew up in church in this country are taught basically nothing about any of this. Are we? I wasn't. I wasn't really taught about these things, but I've learned them over time. But if you go back 50 years, 60 years, you'll find in Protestant churches, these things were taught. The five solas were things that people knew and had heard about. The Reformation was something that was cherished and honored and valued. And Reformation theology and doctrine was something that was celebrated, not derided and not hidden, uh, not an embarrassment to the church. But so many today are embarrassed about their Christian heritage. And therefore, I believe we're living in spiritually dark times. We're living in spiritually dark times because the truth has been hidden, not valued, not fought for. Most people, when they hear about the Reformation, because they don't know anything about it, they sit and they listen and think, oh, this is boring. It's irrelevant. It's a bunch of crusty old guys splitting hairs over theology. It's a sad fact that that's the way the church is in this nation. We love the lights. We love the worship music. We love the vibes. We don't care about theology. And that's why the times are so dark in this nation. You know, people want to blame politics, don't they? They want to blame politicians for all the darkness in the world. Let me tell you, we need to look at ourselves first. We need to look at ourselves first. The darkness in the world is in part due to the darkness inside of churches. Is that we've gone after our own carnal desires instead of running after God's truth. A hard pill to swallow, but a necessary one. We need to repent. We need to turn back to God. We need to begin to love His truth once again. Amen? We do. Now, I want to say as well, we look back on the Reformation and these men, these people like Martin Luther, John Calvin, we look at them as crusty old guys. Let me tell you, these were young men. These were young men. Luther was in his early 20s when he nailed those 95 theses to the door. John Calvin was 27 when he published his now famous theology book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion. And there were many women involved in the Reformation as well. All of them in their 20s. This was a young people's movement. We need to remember this. God uses young people today, amen? God uses young adults today to further his gospel. Now, let's take a look quickly at the time when all these things happen, just so we can get our understanding framed, okay? The Roman Catholic Church, at the time of the Reformation, was racked full of superstition, false teaching, and the traditions of men. Let me also say this. The, the Catholic Church, the Church wasn't always like that. There were times, the early church period, and the church fathers up until about 500 when things were not all superstition and false teaching. But it had become this way. From about 1200 through the medieval period, things had gotten really strange and dark. And there was a stranglehold on the gospel. So much superstition. So much secret revelation. 
so many traditions of men. And for me, that climate sounds a little bit like today. The gospel of grace was shrouded in darkness in those days. It was hidden from people. If you went to a church, the service was in Latin. You didn't understand it. Now, I'm not saying that those things are true today, but I do think there are some parallels. I think there are many false teachings that have crept into the church in our day. I think there are many traditions of men that have crept into the church in our day. I think that lots of people in church these days want secret revelation. They want dreams. They want visions. They want pictures. There's the whole God told me culture, which is a result of the gospel being shrouded in darkness. It's a result of God's truth. The, the scriptures not being proclaimed. And I do think there are parallels. There's a spiritual darkness in these days that we live in. Now these men and women, the reformers, like I've said, they weren't perfect. They weren't perfect. Don't ever look to a man or a woman in church history to tell you perfect doctrine. Nobody's gonna. Nobody's gonna be able to. Nobody's perfect. But what they were was obedient. They were people who were willing to be used of God. Are you willing to be used of God in these times? That's all they were. They were willing servants in the time that they lived in. And they were brave. They were brave. They understood that if they stood against the Catholic Church in their times, that it could mean their death. And for many of them, it did mean death. People like Jan Hus, John Wycliffe, people like Latimer and Ridley, these men were burnt at the stake. In fact, as a student, I lived in Oxford. I used to walk down Broad Street and there was a small cross in the middle of Broad Street in bricks on the floor, which marks the spot where Ridley and Latimer were burned at the stake for raising a voice of protest against the errors of the Catholic Church. They died. That's what kind of men and women God raised up in those times. Zealots, people who were on fire for the truth. People who cared more about God's truth than they did about their own lives. That's the kind of man I want to be, amen? You too? They risked their lives because they understood what was at stake. God's truth, the gospel of salvation. It's important. So important that Paul spoke to the Galatian believers in his letter. He said, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Did you hear that? A different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed as we've said before now I say again if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received let him be accursed this is serious stuff now if there were false gospels running around in first century Christendom how much more so now so how was it that these men and women these reformers how was it that they began to shine a light in that darkness? Because we need to know that, don't we? In our day, how do we begin to shine the light of God's truth, of the gospel, into this 
spiritual darkness. We may see a change in our nation. Just like Naomi shared earlier, we may see a, a, a change in the spiritual climate of this nation and in Europe if we will go back to God's truth. If we'll go back to complaining, sorry, not complaining, proclaiming the gospel. That's how we see change. So what did the reformers do? How can we learn from them? Well, I think it's possible to distill, to compact the teaching of the Reformation down into an easily digestible form. The five solas. Say five solas. Thanks, Dave. Say five solas. It's afternoon. I understand. Everybody's had their dinner. They're ready to snooze off. But come on. Stick with me, okay? Just another 20 minutes, okay? The five solas. Sola is a Latin word, and it means alone or only, okay? And there were five solas. These five solas or these five alone statements, they weren't written by the reformers. There's not a book by Martin Luther called the five solas. But they are the doctrines that underpin the whole movement. So if you understand these five solas, you're going a long way to understanding the theology of the Reformation. And you're understanding why we are where we are today. Okay? So important to understand these things, isn't it? Most Christians don't know why they're not Catholics. It's, it's a funny thing to say, but most Christians don't understand why they're not Catholics today. And therefore, they don't see a problem with going and worshipping in a Catholic church. What's the difference, hey? But when we understand these five solas, we'll understand why we don't celebrate Mass. Why we don't look to the Pope as Christ's vicar on earth. Okay? Why we don't believe in purgatory. Okay? These things are important, are they not? They're matters of truth. It doesn't mean we hate Roman Catholics. No. Not at all. But it teaches us about why we do worship the way that we worship. Okay? So these are the five solas. I'll list them for you quickly and then we'll run through them. Sola Scriptura, which means Scripture alone. Sola Gratia, which means grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Solus Christus, in Christ alone. And soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. Let's look at the first one. I'm going to get my beautiful assistant to put the image on the screen. Thank you. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Martin Luther said this, A simple layman armed with scripture is greater than the mightiest pope without it. Wow. The Catholic Church believes that God's word is the absolute standard for faith and practice. They do believe that. But crucially, they don't believe that scripture alone is where we find God's word. They also believe that God's word could be found in the traditions of the church and in the teachings of the Catholic Church. So they have this way of seeing God's word as scripture and tradition. So they had scripture and tradition where the reformers said, no, scripture alone is God's word. The reformers said effectively that 
Scripture was sufficient for knowing God's Word, since Scripture alone had been God-breathed. That's found in 2 Timothy 3.16, one of the most important verses in the whole Bible. It says this, All Scripture, say all Scripture. Come on, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. May be complete, equipped for every good work. So Scripture alone is said of as being theanostas. That's God breathed. God breathed out all of Scripture. Every verse in your Bible, whether it's John 3.16 or whether it's the genealogies at the start of Luke and Matthew, the, the Bible says it's all breathed out by God. Yes, written by men, but inspired of God. And therefore this Scripture is able to make you complete for every good work. And so... What the reformers said was, in Sola Scriptura, was that the teachings and the traditions of the Catholic Church, the private revelations of the popes, were only acceptable as far as they agreed with Scripture. If they weren't found in Scripture, then they were to be rejected. If revelations, dreams, visions, traditions and teachings were at odds with Scripture. Like the Immaculate Conception of Mary, they were to be rejected. No matter how long they'd been held for, no matter how important the Pope was who revealed that particular teaching, um, they were to be rejected because they weren't found in Scripture. And I think this is so key for today. It's so important for us today because we live also in a time where people are going looking for fresh revelation. They're going and visiting self-proclaimed apostles to look for hidden teachings. They're hungry for prophetic words. They're hungry for teachings that make them feel good. But what Sola Scriptura says is, listen, all of those things must be weighed against Scripture. If they're not found in there, they're to be rejected. Sola Scriptura, on the other hand, doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that we're to only read the Bible. Scripture alone doesn't mean that we've got to throw away and burn all our theology books and we're never allowed to go to another Christian conference again because unless they only read the Bible, we can't listen to them. It doesn't mean that. Nor does it mean that all of the Christian theologians throughout the centuries are to all be disregarded and ignored. It doesn't mean that either. And I do think that there are misunderstandings about Sola Scriptura in the church today. Now most of you, who's hearing this for the first time, Sola Scriptura? For the first time today. The fact is, even if you never heard of this, you'll be impacted by it in the way that you worship God. And I do think there are some errors about understanding this doctrine that have led to problems, right? So some Christians have taken this kind of doctrine to mean that it's me, God, and the Bible. Right? It's individualism. So they, they throw out every 
church teaching and they, they throw out the creeds and the confessions. We don't need them. All I need is the Holy Spirit to tell me what my Bible's saying to me and, you know, to hell with everyone else who disagrees with me. And there are problems with that view. Because if you believe a particular verse is saying this one thing, right, you're convinced, this verse says this one thing, but Christians for two millennia have taught that it means an entirely different thing, you can see we've got a problem. Somebody's wrong. Okay? Sola Scriptura doesn't mean that we're to throw out all the teachings of the church. It just means that they've all got to be in they've all got to be under scripture they're all judged by scripture scripture is god's word and therefore that is what determines how we're to worship god how we're to think of god and if teachings and traditions don't agree with scripture we don't believe them however if they do we can accept them they have their own authority but their authority is underneath the authority of scripture Charles Spurgeon said, The word of God is the anvil upon which the opinions of men are smashed. Bam! Who likes Spurgeon? Tell you what, if you read a Spurgeon sermon a week, it will deepen your faith. It will do. It's hard work. They're long, but they're amazing. Read a Spurgeon sermon a week. Now, as Protestant churches have stopped teaching this doctrine, Sola Scriptura, people have once again gone looking for God's word outside of Scriptures. They have. I see it all the time, brothers and sisters who I love, going, oh, apostle such and such said this. Prophet so and so's declaring this. And a lot of it's nonsense. Not biblical. They don't care. We need to come back to these doctrines once again for today. When Martin Luther stood before the Pope himself in 1521 and the Catholic Church and they were saying to him, recant your doctrine now otherwise we'll cut you off. And there was a genuine threat of his life being ended. He stood before them and said this, unless I'm convinced by the testimony of scriptures or by clear reason for I do not trust either in the Pope or in the councils alone since it's well known that they have erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Sola gratia. Let's look at that. Sola gratia means grace alone. Grace alone. Say sola gratia. Oh, done. It teaches that we're saved by the grace of God. But crucially, what upset the Catholics was it was the grace of God alone. We're saved by the grace of God alone. And that this grace of God isn't given to us because we did something to earn it. Since if you do something to earn grace, guess what? It's not grace. But grace is bestowed on us by God simply because of His good pleasure. Romans 9 says, For He says to Moses, 
I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on who I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The Roman Catholic Church at the time taught that you were saved by grace, yes, but crucially not by grace alone. I want to say as well, there are some things we can agree with with the Catholic Church, particularly Christology. Their understanding of Christ is essentially our understanding of Christ. But there are other big gospel issues that we cannot agree with the Roman Catholic Church on. One of them is this. Their Council of Trent. Have you heard of the Council of Trent before? The Council of Trent was the kind of anti-Reformation council that the Catholic Church had in the 16th century. And here's what it has to say about grace. It's a direct quote from this council. If anyone says that men are justified either by the imputation of the righteousness of Christ alone or by the remission of sins alone to the exclusion of grace and love that's poured forth in their hearts by the Holy Spirit and is inherent to them, or even that the grace by which we are justified is only the favor of God, let him be anathema. That's quite long-winded. But what it's saying is, if anyone says that they're saved by the grace of God alone, and not by their own good works, their own, try and find the words here, their own grace and love poured forth by the Holy Spirit, let them be accursed. So they taught that you were justified, not just by God's grace, but also by your own inherent righteousness, which was, yes, worked in you by God, but it was your own. Council of Trent also said, if anyone says that the guilt is remitted to every penitent sinner after the grace of justification has been received, and that the debt of eternal punishment is so blotted out that there remains no temporal punishment in this world or the next or in purgatory, let him be anathema. So again, they're saying, if anyone says that the grace of God actually perfectly saves them, without any leftover sin that needs to be punished in purgatory, let them be accursed. So you can see the difference here, can't you, between what we believe and what the Catholic Church still believes. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 says, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he's loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been Saved, not are being, not will be, have been saved. Sola fide, sola fide, by faith alone. This means that we're saved through faith and through faith alone, not faith plus works. We know that James says that a faith without works is what? It's dead. It's dead. But a true faith will bring forth works. You're not saved by those works. But true faith does bring forth works. Again, the Catholic Church at the time said this, quote, If anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate 
in order to obtain the grace of justification and that it's not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the own action of his will, let him be anathema. So for them, the faith itself, the predisposition or the way that your heart was positioned was your own works that attracted the grace of God. And so you can see they believed in a kind of, yes, faith, but faith plus. Faith plus works. Whereas Ephesians 2, 8-9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. Through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. Before we become Christians, we're naturally averse to this idea of receiving something that we didn't earn. It's just alien to us. But this is exactly what grace is. It's unmerited favor. It's unmerited favor. And the New Testament knocks the legs out from any kind of understanding of a self-righteousness works gospel. Because of this doctrine called election. And as soon as I say it, bums begin to shift in seats. But listen, election is not a Calvinist doctrine. Election is not a reformed doctrine. It's a biblical doctrine. It's a biblical doctrine. Ephesians 1 verse 4 and 5 says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us, there's that word, for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to what? According to your foreseen faith? According to your good works that he foresaw and chose you because of them? No. According to the purpose of his will. Election means that God chose those who were his before the foundation of the world, before they could do anything to deserve it. Now, if that's not free grace, I don't know what is. We're saved through faith and faith alone. Not faith plus works. Romans 4, 4-6 says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Did you catch that? If we do anything to earn the grace of God, if we have to position ourselves of our own will to get God's favor, it's not grace. It's our due. Grace is undeserved favor. Unmerited favor. Let's go on. Solus Christus. Solus Christus. This means in Christ alone. In Christ alone. The theologian B.B. Warfield said this. The saving power of faith resides not in faith itself, but in the almighty Savior on whom it rests. Faith is powerful to save, not because of the faith itself, but because of Christ in whom it rests. Christ alone is the doctrine that says that we're saved in Christ alone. And we're saved 
by Christ alone. Not by Christ plus Mary. Not by Christ plus the saints. Not by Christ plus your own works. And not by Christ plus the church. By Christ alone. Why was this such an issue? Well, I'm going to read a quote to you from a very famous Roman Catholic book called The Faith of Millions. I'm going to read this to you, and I want you to just sit and just take this in and see how this makes you feel. Quote, When the priest announces the tremendous words of consecration, he reaches up into the heavens brings Christ down from his throne and places him upon our altar to be offered up again as the victim for the sins of man. It is a a power greater than that of the saints and of angels, greater than that of seraphim and cherubim. Indeed, it is greater even than the power of the Virgin Mary. While the Blessed Virgin was the human agency by which Christ became incarnate a single time, the priest brings Christ down from heaven and renders him present at our altar as the eternal victim for the sins of man. Not once, but a thousand times. The priest speaks, and lo, Christ, the eternal and omnipotent God, bows his head in humble obedience to the priest's commands. Of what sublime dignity is the office of the Christian priest, who is thus privileged to act, as the ambassador and vice-gerent of Christ on earth. He continues the essential ministry of Christ. He teaches the faithful with the authority of Christ. He pardons the penitent sinner with the power of Christ. He offers up again the same sacrifice of adoration and atonement which Christ offered at Calvary. No wonder that the name which spiritual writers are especially fond of applying to the priest is that of Alter Christus. For the priest is and should be another Christ. That's John O'Brien, the faith of millions. Anything shock you there? The priest is another Christ. And Christ must bow his head in submission to the priest. And Christ's sacrifice is offered up again and again and again. A re-sacrifice at the Mass. Now Christ is our perfect Savior through faith. And His sacrifice on the cross was sufficient once for all. It doesn't need to be repeated in the Mass. We don't need the ministry of priests to complete our salvation. It's complete in Christ alone because of His work once for all at the cross. Hebrews 10, 10 to 14 says, And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Say once for all. Once for all. Hallelujah. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he awaits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those 
who are being made holy. And finally, soli deo gloria. To God alone be the glory. To God alone be the glory. This is to say that all the glory belongs to God for our salvation and for every good thing in this world. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. Romans 11.36 says, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. And when we read the passage in Ephesians, it's clear to us that we were dead. If you're in here today and you're a Christian, there was a time when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. It says that we were following the course of the world. So we were captive to the world. It says we were following the prince of the power of the air. That is, we were following not God, but Satan. And thirdly, we were living out the passions of the flesh. We were captive to the flesh. That The Bible calls you, before you're in Christ, not a son of God, not a daughter of God, not a lost son of God, not a lost daughter of God, but a child of wrath. This is the witness of Scripture. We're captive before we're in Christ. We're not free. We're slaves to the world. We're slaves to the devil. We're slaves to sin. It's a very dark picture. But thanks be to God for those two words in Ephesians 2. But God. But God made you alive. He made you born again. He gives you the faith that is required. He grants you repentance. Can we see that there's one active party in salvation here? The verbs in that second chapter refer to one being. And that one being is God. And therefore, only God deserves the glory. Not me plus God. Not the church plus God. God alone deserves the glory. John 1, 12 and 13 says, But to all who did receive him believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I wonder today, are you born again? We can go through life, attending church meetings, doing Christian things, But are we born again? Have we got a new life inside of us? Is there a desire to run from sin? To leave sin behind and to embrace Christ? Is there a new life inside of you today? Are we born again? If we are, then all the glory goes to God. Amen? We have Him to thank. And this is the thing that blows my mind. The more I walk with Christ, the more bowled over I am that he even saved me in the first place. The more I realize that I didn't deserve it. That there was nothing in me to commend myself to God. But that even my choices to choose him were guided and worked in me by him. Wow. What a good God we have. What a wonderful savior. Chad Bird is a Lutheran theologian. He said, You never had a single thing to do with saving yourself. It was all done to you and for you. While God, for a time, just let you carry on in your daydream that you had a little skin in the game of salvation. So do you have to believe in Christ? Yes, you have to believe in Christ. Do you have to repent of your sin? 
Yes, you must repent of your sin. This is the apostolic gospel. But could you do either of those two things without the Holy Spirit? Without being born again? The clear witness of Scripture is no, you could not. You were dead. You required a new life in you. And He gave you that life. Soli Deo Gloria. Glory to God alone. Let's stand. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. Um, you know, I believe that these doctrines are important for us today. I don't think they're just to be condemned to history, forgotten about. I believe that if we grasp these truths that have been handed down to us, then we can be a catalyst for change in our nation. We can become part of a change in the church in this nation. And we can see God move afresh. Amen? We can see God work in our own lives afresh. And so I think this is an opportunity for recommitting our hearts to Christ today. Recommitting ourselves to God's word afresh. Maybe you've spent a long time not really in the word. Not really studying the scriptures. Maybe you've spent a lot of time not really glorying in the fact that you're saved at all. Today's an opportunity to reconnect with his word. Today's an opportunity to say once again, I'm yours, Lord. I'm yours. Just like the reformers, do with me whatever you please. I belong to you. If you'd like prayer for anything at all, I invite you to come on down to the prayer corner. I'm going to ask um, Darren if you could come down and, and just pray for anyone who wants to come. And also Lynn, if you wouldn't mind coming to the prayer corner as well, if there are any ladies who'd like prayer, you can come on down and they would be happy to pray for you. Whether you want healing for something, whether you just need help and need somebody to stand with you in prayer, come on down and, and receive prayer. Let's worship together.